Well, we all know the big names in the history of the fight for equality and civil rights in this country. We, we know the big names. But there's someone who's written extensively and has spoken all over the country and has had a, a significant influence in, in, in civil rights movement in this country that you may never have heard of. His name is John Perkins. Perkins was born in 1930 in New Hebron, Mississippi, about an hour's south drive of Jackson. And much of his life can be described in one word, and that's difficult. His mother died when he was seven months old, and his father abandoned him. He was forced to be raised by his uh, grandparents and his other family members. While still a teenager, he, he moved to Southern California, quite the change. He moved because his brother, his older brother, had been shot by a police officer, something that far too many black men and women experienced during this moment in the Deep South. In 1957, as a 27-year-old, Perkins' little boy invited him to come to church, and that day, John Perkins came to know the Savior. Three years later, he decided to move back to Mississippi with his family to be on the front lines of the battle for civil rights. He started a daycare. He helped with voter registration. He, he fought segregation. He led boycotts of stores that were harming people in the black community. In 1970, following the arrest of students who had taken part in a protest march, Perkins was arrested and tortured by police officers while in cap, uh, custody. In 1998, his son, his son Spencer, uh, himself a leader in the movement for racial reconciliation, died at the age of 43. Spencer, as a little boy, was the one who invited John to church. The church that God used to proclaim the gospel and bring John to repentance and faith. After Spencer's death, John wrote this. Spencer now clearly sees what I only see dimly through a glass. John Perkins' life was one of difficulty after difficulty. He, he's written more than a, a dozen books, and the most recent from 2019. But it's a quote from his memoir in 2017 that gets to me every time. Now keep in mind all of the, the violence and the hatred and, and all of the difficulties that he faced in his life. And he said this. How in the world did I get here? The only answer I know to give is that these things can happen when you walk with God. It's easy to look at a person to see where he started and how far he has come and think you know how the story will end. But I've learned what Saul learning on the road to Damascus. When God's involved, everything can change in an instant. Now you may think you know where you're headed, but often God has a different plan. Something exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think Sometimes a, a light drizzle becomes a deluge. Other times you open your eyes to find yourself by still waters. Sometimes you hear thunder clapping along with the rain. Other times the clouds disappear so you can see a billion stars in the sky. What John Perkins has endured his entire life is something that most of us would say, well, we don't blame you for doubting the providence of God. If God is all loving and all powerful and he loves you as a child, how could he let you go through all of these difficulties? We, we would say, you, you know what, you've endured enough that you, you can ask those questions. But Perkins sees that God always has a plan. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand it, even when we don't agree with it, God's plan is still moving forward. We may not see it, but God is still in control. 
Last week we, we explored the death of Sarah. After, after years and years of marriage to Abraham, she died and Abraham had to bury his wife. We saw that he was mistreated in Canaan. But that wasn't the end of his story, was it? Where Abraham was just looking for a, a cave, a place to bury his wife, God was orchestrating events so that the land would one day belong to his descendants. Not an accident. But we also saw how the greatest blessing is not in a piece of property. It's not in a land. It's not in dirt and soil. The greatest promise is that Jesus would come to make all things new and all things right. This is the hope that Abraham had. That it would come from his line. His descendant would bless the nations and save his people from their sin. This was God's plan since before the foundation of the earth to save sinners. Well, now that Sarah had been buried, Abraham likely ponders his own old age. He, he was probably 140 years old at this point. His son Isaac was somewhere around 40. So Abraham likely thinks back on all that the Lord had done for him, and then he thinks about his son Isaac. He's not a young man anymore. To us, he'd be middle-aged. In the Bible, it's still 40 is still pretty old at that point. Abraham knows that he's received this promise from God. So you'll be the father of many nations. You'll, you'll bless nations through your descendants. He, he knows that promise. And he's gotten it more than one time. He's seen the miraculous work of God over and over again. And, and, and he, he's wondering, I'm certain he's wondering, what's going to happen next? I mean, it's only natural, right? My, my son's 40. Some of you may have children in their 40s and you're wondering, where are the grandkids coming from? And, and so he's wondering, how is this going to happen? My son is single. He has no children. How is this promise going to come about? And you've got to think, how many times... Have we seen Abraham not know what God is going to do, and yet God every single time makes it happen? Every time. Abraham and Sarah didn't trust the promise of an heir, so they went out on their own and tried to make it happen. They, they, they tried their best to make it work, and we're still feeling the, the outcome of that, aren't we? But on the other end of the spectrum of Abraham's story, Abraham was told by God, go kill your son. If you remember what Abraham said as they were going up the mountain, he turned and looked at his servants and he said, my son and I will come back. God just told him to go slaughter his son. And Abraham had faith that God would make it right. Whether that means God would breathe life back into his lungs or whether that mean God, means God would, would stave off the, the, the knife going through his son's body. Whatever it may be, Abraham had faith that he would return with his son. So now Abraham is a really old man. He knows that he's lived much longer than expected and he has no grandchild. There's no heir. What happens now? What does Abraham do at this point? He, he wouldn't live to see the promised land. We know that. It was already said before. But at least he wants to see his son get married and have a kid. Look at verses 2 through 4. 
And Abraham said to his servant, one of the, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. First thing I notice is that I'm grateful that we don't have to grab each other's thighs. Um, it's awkward for everyone. There are... There are cultural shifts that I am so grateful that they've happened, um, and this being, this being one of them. Um, there's some disagreement about what exactly this means. When, when, when someone in the Old Testament would, would put their hands under the thighs, what it would mean, it, it could mean a, a reference to circumcision. That the covenant that God had made, and I won't go into detail why that connects, but you can do that your own self. Um, or it could be something involving procreation. Again, no details needed, but, but you, know, you know what happens. Whatever the cultural significance, it was a sign that the servant submitted to the will of Abraham. Abraham said, I want you to do this. And he said, promise me. And the servant did. And he says that Isaac can't marry a Canaanite woman. Now, you've got a question, why not? Genesis 9, Canaan was cursed and if you read the story of Christ in Luke and in Matthew, you'll see something. You'll see a bunch of sinful people. There's no doubt about that. But Canaan was cursed. Can't fall in the line of Christ. So then your mind may be thinking, well, why doesn't Isaac just go do it himself, right? If any of you comes to me and says, hey, Ryan, I'm, I need a spouse, find one for me, I'm going to say no. Go to... Farmers only or something. Go, go to one of those websites and, and, and go find someone. I'm not going to do all the work for you. But here, that's not what's happening. Why doesn't Isaac get up and go himself and, and go find a woman for him to marry? Think about it. The, the family would have certainly wanted to meet Isaac. When, when you met your spouse, did, 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 did your spouse's family, didn't they want to meet you? They want to make sure that you're not crazy, that, that you're not going to do all sorts of horrible things. So why doesn't Isaac go? Well, Abraham had a reason. Look at verses 6 through 9. He says, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Isaac couldn't leave the land because his presence proved the promise of God. He had to stay in the land that God promised. In fact, Genesis 26.2 says that Isaac couldn't even leave the land during a severe famine. He had to stay right where he was. Again, human thinking, our own reasoning would say, he should have got up and gone, right? But in God's providence, he had a plan for all of this. We see this over and over throughout Genesis, really throughout the Bible, but specifically it's Really, really obvious in Genesis that God's hand was in this all the time at every turn. There is not one moment that was not planned and orchestrated by the Father. 
God's providence is in this. And so Abraham makes these statements trusting in that providence. He goes from accusing God, laughing at the promise of God, for not giving him a son, to saying in verse 7 that God will send an angel and that's what's going to happen. And I have faith that this will happen. Quite the change. Maybe it's his old age, the older that he's, he's gotten with every year that's passed. And we don't have a lot of stories about Abraham beyond, um, you know, the, these short stories. And, but there's a lot of gaps. And just like a, a, an older person who, who reads their Bible and prays and, and devotes themselves to the discipleship of others, as we age, we get more mature in our faith and we start to see the bigger picture a little bit better. To quote John Perkins, the glass that we're looking through gets a little clearer, doesn't it? And so he's had 140 years to think through these things. And, and so Abraham at this point is, a, is an old man. He, know, he knows that he's about to die. He, he knows he doesn't have much longer to live. And rather than giving up on the promise, his, his love for God grows. And some of you may have been tested. Actually, all of us have been tested at one point or another. We've been tried many times, more times than we can count. We've suffered to one degree or another. And some of us are suffering right now. Maybe you, you've failed to live up to the standard that God has given in Scripture, that you, you've failed to meet that standard. I'm with you. And so there's a temptation inside of us to question everything. I encourage you to question what you believe. I think that's healthy. Question why you believe what you believe. Question all of those things that you see. And in fact, I hope you question the traditions and sacred cows that we've created in our own lives and in the lives of the church. But not so that you can tear down your foundation. You question these so you can be built up. Now what I'm saying here is that Abraham was tested and what happened? His faith grew as a result. He, he sinned, no doubt. Caused great harm. He saw that God was faithful through it all, though, didn't he? And he was strengthened by it. He was a hero of the faith, but it wasn't because he was a super saint. In fact, he did things, uh, he did worse things than most of us here will ever do. I mean, just read through the story of Abraham, and he, he by all accounts, by, by our standard, was not a very good guy. But his faith, his faith was strengthened by everything that he went through. God, in his providence, used all the junk in Abraham's life to make him who he was. Abraham was not the same guy at 140 as he was 40 years before that. I want to encourage you through this. You've probably made bad decisions. I, I've made a ton of them. I've hurt people. You, you probably have hurt people too. Uh, we've all been selfish. We, we've all been greedy. We've all lied. We've all sinned in our hearts. And what the Bible says, what Jesus says, is that if we've committed one of those, we're guilty of them all. That we stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. And our relationship with God, the, the, the relationship that Adam and Eve once had, is broken. 
See, Jesus didn't come for healthy people, spiritually healthy. He didn't come for those who don't need him. He came to save sinners, to save those who could not save themselves. And when we turn from our sin and put our trust and our faith and our hope in Christ as our Savior, we're made alive. We're adopted as royal sons and daughters. This is the gospel. And Abraham believed in this. Now, he was way before Jesus would come on the scene, but he had faith and had hope that God would send the one who he promised in Genesis chapter 3. Abraham believed. He had faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the gospel. The the gospel in the life of Abraham and in my life and in the lives of every single Christian shows us that God makes things right. He takes horrible and tragic situations and he uses them for his purposes. Now you may be thinking, of all of those bad things that you've done, Your mind is running right now thinking through all of those things that you've done that were harmful or hurtful to others. Those words that you said, those actions, those things that you did. You're thinking, how in the world can God use that for good? How is that even possible? I'm here to tell you the truth. You may never know. You may never see this side of eternity how those actions were used by God for good. God doesn't advocate sin. He never causes us to sin. But nothing that happens in this world happens with God looking the other way. Gives us hope. We may never grasp why these bad things have happened to us or why we've done these bad things. But we have hope that God will make it good. If you remember the story um, about Joseph and his brothers, he was sold into slavery by his own brothers. They were jealous. And so Joseph goes to Egypt, and and what happens? Joseph becomes, he rises into positions of authority. Years later, his brothers come. And they're trying to make things right, and, and Joseph could have had his brothers killed. He had every right to do it, at least imprisoned. And what does he say? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph saved the people of Egypt, making God look great in a hostile land. Do you understand this? That Joseph, being in the right place at the right time, again, orchestrated by God, being sold into slavery, served a purpose in a foreign land so that Joseph could show the glory and greatness of God to a people who hated him. Can God use your bad situation? Absolutely. Does he? Yes. At the time of his suffering, Joseph had no idea what God was going to do to him, but he found out. In Abraham's life, he did all that he could to make a mess of his life, just like you and me. We constantly do it. It's a human condition. It's because of the fall of Adam. We have a bad habit, a tendency to do everything that we can to make a mess of our lives, don't we? Think about all those bad decisions that we've made. We do our best. But God is always faithful because God knows the future. God uses all those sins and wicked deeds and suffering that we go through to accomplish his purposes. Now, I'm not a prosperity preacher by no means, so I'm not going to tell you that things are going to turn out great for you. 
you may not have the same outcome that Abraham had. Your life may be difficult. Maybe hard, it may be defined by suffering, but hear me on this. If you believe in a powerful God, if you believe in a God that loves you and shows mercy and kindness to his enemies, then you must believe that God has a plan and purpose for whatever you're going through right now. You, I could not worship a God that doesn't have the ability to make bad things good. But we see throughout scripture that he does over and over again, and we're seeing this happening at the end of Abraham's life. We've been on a bit of a roller coaster spiritually and emotionally through this. And I'll be honest, I've got mixed feelings about Abraham as a guy. I don't think I'd be one of his buddies. But God never gave up on him, did he? God says, you are my child. You are secure. You may fail me, but I will never fail you. He says the same thing to us, doesn't he? So far in this text, we've seen the commissioning of a servant. And now in verses 10 through 27, we see the faith of this servant. Abraham's servant, who is not named, travels for a thousand miles to find a bride for Isaac. He kneels down at the well and he prays. Just as Abraham said. And he said, praise this. O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my Master Abraham, behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. The servant's not asking for anything miraculous. He, he's not asking uh, 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 for the seas to be split into two. He's not asking for the sun to stand still. Those happened. He's just asking that this is God's will. He was asking for God to make things work as only he can. Again, he was relying on the providence of God to make this happen. Again, but don't think this is normative for us as Christians. In fact, this be can become us constantly putting God to the test. Well, God, I I'm not going to buy that car unless I get a mailing from that car dealership today. God, I'm, I'm not going to marry that girl unless she says exactly these words. This is not normative for us. But it did happen. But see, here's the thing. And you may remember this in your days as Sunday school. Certainly not here, but, but certainly many of us have had this experience where we learn stories about Abraham, and all we learn are the good stuff, the clean stuff, right? That, that we learn about how Abraham was good, and God liked it, and God gave him blessings, and Abraham lived a long time and lived a good life. See, do you know the moral of the story often becomes, well, do good, God blesses it, and you'll be happy. That works in America. That does not work in Afghanistan right now, does it? Be faithful to God in Afghanistan and see what happens. Love the Lord, serve others in these hostile countries in North Korea and see what happens to you. It doesn't work and it never was intended to be interpreted that way. 
But I was told by these Sunday school teachers this, and the one thing I do remember that was positive is that they say that God does answer prayers. Yes, no, or wait. So I did learn something. But in verse 15 through 17, God does work. The answer is yes, and it's almost immediately yes. In fact, God orchestrates everything to happen just as the servant asks. Look at this, verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my lord. And she quickly let her jar down upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they had finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for her, all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets from her uh, for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Can you imagine what's going on in the servant's head right now? It doesn't say, but there may have been some doubt. It's human nature. Abraham, you're really asking me to do this? All of these details have to be lined up perfectly. All right, I serve you. And then piece by piece, he sees this unfold. Before he even finishes praying, he looks up and he sees Rebecca walk up. Immediately. The servant couldn't have come up with a better story than this one. She's pretty. She's single. She's got a soft heart. She's part of the right people. And she cares for others. Perfect woman, right? Perfect. Well, in verses 28 through 60, we then see the faithfulness of God. So we've seen the servant being faithful. We see God being faithful. And then we see his faithfulness even more on display. First, Laban provides for the servant in verses 28 through 33. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Oh, to be her parents. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward this man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to this man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. This is the same Laban that we'll hear about in Genesis chapter 29, the same Laban who deceives Jacob, Isaac's son. The story kind of intersects, doesn't it? These verses show that he's greedy. 
He sees the bracelets, he sees the gold, and he makes a beeline to get out there, doesn't he? He's not a good guy. It'll be proven later on. And then verses 34 through 49, the servant retells the story of how he got to this point, of what Abraham had said to him to get to this point. He, he's, he's telling uh, uh, this Rebecca and her um, family of what happened to get him to this point, how God was working. And in verses 50 to 54, we see their response. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go. And let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were there ate with him, ate and drank, and they spent the night there. See the providence of God again. What if they would have said no? But instead they said, come. Come in the house, we'll feed you, you can stay here, and we'll give you our daughter. If something is part of God's plan, and hear me on this, in your life, and this is one thing we can take away, if something is part of God's plan, there is nothing that you or I can do to thwart that. That's, we, we pray, we don't pray so that we can change God's mind. We pray as a child comes to their mother or father and says, Mom, Dad, I need help. We want to hear that as parents. We pray to give ourselves peace. We pray because we believe that it works when God hears the petitions of his children. But this was part of God's plan from the beginning. And the story continues in the second half of verse 54 on. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. And after that she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, O our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. It's pointing to Christ, isn't it? They may not have even fully understood what they were saying, but these words point us to Jesus. And in verses 61 through 67, we see the conclusion of this passage is the reward for faith. Then Rebecca, and this is a picture, this, this is my favorite part of this passage because I can see this happening. I can, this is a movie. Then Rebecca and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted the camel and said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Culturally, we don't resonate with this at all. If some guy tries to pull this on my daughter, he's not getting very far. Even with gold. 
We don't usually travel thousand miles, thousands of miles to find a spouse. I don't know anyone with a camel. But you can picture this. It's a Hallmark movie, isn't it? He goes out into the field. And perfect time of the day, it's dusk, the sun's setting, and he looks up and and, and I'm and I'm Adding to this, certainly. But, but he looks up, and, and maybe the sunlight is behind, so he sees this glorious picture of these camels coming over the hill, and he looks up, and at the same time he looks up, his future bride looks up. He knows what's happening. She doesn't know who this guy is. Who's this man walking towards us? Who is he? You could picture Isaac praying, and his prayer is interrupted by the sounds of the camels. And the cargo, he looks up and she looks up and they see each other. Joy and anxiety uh, is mounting for Isaac because his father's servant isn't coming back empty-handed. There is a woman with him who wasn't there before. Rebecca asks and the servant tells, says, that's Isaac. The proper decorum of the day would be for a betrothed woman. She's showing that she's engaged now. Would be for a betrothed woman from upper class to cover her face. This is why in in the Old Testament we often see passages talking about how beautiful someone's eyes were. Genesis 29, it says Leah's eyes were weak and Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. The marriage between Isaac and Rebekah was immediate. Again, this won't be with my daughter, but it was immediate. Verse 67 says that Isaac loved her. This is the first time in scripture that marital love is talked about. The story of God bringing these two people together that that, that would have had no other way. I mean, traveling a thousand miles today is a long time. A thousand miles on camel is something that none of us would ever want to do. And yet God made it work. Kent Hughes, a retired pastor, uh, has a collection of his sermons Uh, on the book of Genesis, he writes this. God provides and controls in three grand arenas, history, nature, and the lives of individual people. God's providential control of life is illustrated by virtually every narrative in the Bible. See, we, in Sunday school, we learned about these stories. But they were just stories. They were little characters on a felt board. Stories about individuals who did great things and God gave them good things and, and, and that was their reward and everybody left happy. Well, aside from that not being part of the Bible, it misses the main point that connects all the Bible together. These stories aren't filler. They aren't lessons on how to be good. They are included in Scripture to show us the faithfulness of God. And he was most faithful in the promise that he gave that he would one day send the one to crush the head of the serpent. Christian, the faithfulness of God is the only reason why you have hope at all. That you worship a powerful God who is stronger than anything that we can ever imagine. And that this God has made promises to you as his adopted children that he will never leave you or forsake you. That he promises that he will send his son again to restore creation back to its original design. This is the promise. This is where we have hope. When you're suffering, where do you go? When you're at the bottom, where do you go? Paul says in Romans 8, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen, what this is saying is, is that for those who believe in Christ, the promise of eternity awaits you. That you will be made right with God when you trust in Jesus for your faith and for your salvation. This is the promise. This is the hope that you have. That all things, good and bad, and everything in between, work together for good for those who are found in Christ. That doesn't mean that it works together for good on your terms or my terms. We have a tendency to put God in a box, don't we? To say that this is my definition of how God should operate, and anything that deviates from that, I don't want anything to do with it. It says that all things work together for good, and I'll add this, on God's terms, how God defines good, not how I define good or how you define good. Because if you read further in Genesis, you'll see more and more bad things happening to these people who we're reading about. People who are part of the promise, the, the, the lineage of Christ, of the Messiah that would come, bad things happen to all of them. But God takes that mess. He takes their sin and he makes it whole. He makes it good. Providence is the protective care of God. That he can take your horrible situation and make it good. He can take a horrible, dead, decaying heart and make it alive. We worship a God who can do miracles. And if you're a believer in Christ, if you're a follower in Christ, you are a living miracle now. His care extends to every corner of the universe. Nothing surprises God. There is not one thing that gives him any surprise. Now, whereas we as Christians find comfort in this, and we should, those who are outside of the family of faith, those who are not believers in Christ, not Christians, this should scare you. Because God knows everything. Otherwise, he's not God. He knows everything that you've done. He knows everything that you've thought. He knows everything that you've hidden in the corners of your mind that you don't want anyone else to know about. God knows. He knows your heart. And this should break us. Even for the Christian, the fact that God knows our own wretchedness and still chooses to extend his love to us and still gives us his love is a miracle. I don't understand it. I don't understand why God would love me. I did nothing to earn it. The more we grow in our faith, the more we realize how unworthy we are of God's mercy and his love. But yet God is faithful at every single turn. The story of Abraham is not about a good man. It's not about a guy who did great things for the Lord. No, it's about God and his faithfulness. It should remind us of the providence of God and why it's not only necessary, but it's for our good. Would you pray with me?